guys. Uh, if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 1, we're going to read the very last verse of chapter 1, verse 22, that is, and then we will read down through verse 15 of chapter 2. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 22, these are God's words for us this morning, and uh, here's what God says. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took uh, for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she uh, put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among uh, the, the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He, he looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing, is, the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. 
and he sat down by a well. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There is no word like your word. And now as we look more closely at what we've just read, Father, help us. Show us wonderful things from your word. Father, not just so that we would know a thing or two, but that your word by your spirit would alter us, transform us, change us. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've begun our time together in the book of Exodus. This is now our third uh, uh, time to look at Exodus. And as we uh, noticed uh, last time, um, uh, God is at work in the midst of uh, just a, a horrible time of affliction and tragedy, a time of suffering, a time of bondage as the people of Israel are in captivity. And um, one of the things that we will see as the book of, Hebrew, uh, book of Exodus unfolds is that uh, it is the Lord Himself. He is going to make this evidently clear, that, that His name might be known, that He might be glorified. It is the Lord Himself who will rescue and redeem His people. And yet, and yet the Lord who will rescue His people is pleased to use human instruments in that work of redemption and rescue. And part of what we see this morning is God laying out some of the preliminary groundwork for how he is getting his human instruments of his work of redemption ready. We see that in the arrival of Moses and in, in the first uh, 11, uh, uh, 10 verses, but we also see something of the preparatory work of the Lord in Moses' life in what we just read in verses 11 through 15. Two things I want us to see briefly from our time together this morning. I want, to see, want us to see, speaking of this human instrument that the Lord is going to use to be a redeemer for his people, I want us to see something of the protection surrounding this redeemer. And, but then I want to see something of the preparation supporting this Redeemer. So, protection and preparation. Well, I begin in a very jarring way in verse 22. Pharaoh has commanded all his people. The edict has gone out for all Egyptian people when they discover young infant Hebrew boys to kill them. You see the, the, the policies of Pharaoh escalating. His strategy that we learned last week is the real gist of what he's up to in that sense is he wants to limit and control God's people. He feels fearful of, dreadful of, frightened by God's people. And, and he, he thinks that he has can devise a way to thwart, limit, and control God's people. And, and so he began with a, a just simply the laying tasks of hard work upon them. And, and, and that morphed into uh, actually enslaving them, putting taskmasters over them. All of that was a part of his shrewd and ruthless strategies. And, and even when those strategies failed to work, to limit and control, God nevertheless was at work multiplying and increasing the Hebrew people. Uh, then Pharaoh's strategy was to instruct the Hebrew midwives to uh, 
kill, in, in the process of delivery, kill the Hebrew boys that were being delivered. And, and yet the Hebrew uh, midwives feared God, we are told, more than they feared Pharaoh. And God preserved them. And so Pharaoh has to kick it up another notch, if you would. He escalates his policy of limiting and controlling God's people. By, by now, uh, after they are delivered, uh, and I, I don't know really what the age range is, but any, any infant or toddler, I suppose, uh, as long as it's a boy, is fair game to be taken out. Just a, remind, a, mindful, just a, a reminder that, that there is a distinction between what is lawful and what is right. Now, we certainly need wisdom to navigate that. We're not to walk around and be our own version of a loose cannon. And just because we don't like a law uh, means that uh, we can just up and do whatever we want in rebellion to that. No, we ought to be the first in line to, 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 to be submissive to those that God has placed over us. And, and, and yet the scriptures teach us, history has taught us that, that there has been time and time again when governmental regimes have, have made something lawful or unlawful. And, and it, but it violates the moral law of God. <coughs> we certainly see that played out here. And, um, and so, in that context of this new policy, the new law of the land, we are introduced in chapter 2 to um, a man from the house of Levi who marries a girl from the house of Levi. So here is the Levitical tribe, and, uh, and it's, it's uh, something of a quick and fast love story, if you would, and yet it's much, about, much more than, than that. Um, did you catch their, their name? Now, you'll, you'll learn their name later, uh, 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 but uh, in case you're gone that Sunday, um, we're talking about Amram, who's the man, and Jochebed, uh, who's the the wife and eventually the mother. And of course, while we're at it, there's a, there's a sister thrown into the mix. We're not told her name either, and, and yet we'll later find out this is probably Miriam. Uh, and, but along comes a little baby boy. And before the story is out, we're explicitly told his name because why? Well, that's what you really need to focus on in this story. Uh, there, there's some amazing things being done by these um, uh, anonymous uh, ladies. And, and nonetheless, uh, really what we're told to focus in on is this boy that is going to be arriving. This boy whom his mother will defy the law of the land. His sister will defy the law of the land. And I tell you, in quite a sucker punch, even Pharaoh's own daughter will defy the law of the land. Again, don't overread this that I'm now empowering you to go out and, and uh, just, just disobey whatever law you don't like. It's not quite that simple, folks. Uh, it's a long stretch from whatever law you don't like to an edict from the Pharaoh to kill babies. That you, so you can understand there's a gradation of importance here. Right? Um, and this is on the important list. Some of our pet peeves may not be on the important list. Right? So... But we're told here that when this baby arrives, in, in verse uh, 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, and, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So this is an act of 
civil disobedience. In a moment, we're going to see this is an act of creative civil disobedience. Uh, uh, but when it says he, she saw that he was a fine child, other translations might read, he was no ordinary child. Now, I, I would suggest to you that's not to, meant to be taken objectively. He was just a baby. He was just an, an ordinary, somewhat ugly baby. <laughs> that's how they all start out. I mean, just if you've ever seen the, uh, the movie E.T., it's just kind of like it's very similar to that, you know. Uh, and, 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 yet, and, and yet, oh, the, praise God for the love of a mother. She, was, she looked at that child and said, this is, this is a fine child. This is, this is no ordinary child. That's, that, and, and, and ladies, that's always the right answer as you look at your baby. I remember when Andrew was born, our first son. I, Diane and I were just so amazed. Uh, the, the doctor delivered him, and the doctor turned and handed him to me, and I just saw perfection there. I just, I just, he, he opened his eyes and looked at me. I looked at him, and we connected at that moment. That was on a Wednesday afternoon at 3.30, and, and that next Sunday, we just had to show off the most beautiful child in the world to our church family, so we took him to church. I mean, when you arrive at perfection at the first try, it's just like, you know, a little boy, five years old, named Michael, uh, came and took a peek at Andrew and said, uh, my dog has hair like that. <laughs> Shattered us. We were crushed. Uh, uh, but Michael don't know nothing. We, we, uh, the, mom and dad thought he was a beautiful child, a fine child, and uh, uh, no ordinary child. When she could hide this beautiful child no longer. It says there in, in, in verse 3, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. Now, uh, the, the word for basket is only used two times in the Old Testament. Guess where the other time it was used? It was used in conjunction to what Noah built. What did Noah build? An ark. Do you see, a miniature ark is, is, is what Jacobed is building. And I don't think it's no, no fluke, no mistake here. Really what we're seeing is that as God preserved his people in Genesis uh, uh, six, seven, eight, and nine, uh, 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 by, by providing an ark for them to be, uh, have safe passage, God is, is allowing Jochebed to build a baby ark. In fact, even the same pitch that's put around that ark is the same pitch that, that Noah put around his big boy ark uh, in order to keep it afloat and keep it dry. So as you see, you see God's hand at work here, even though God is not explicitly mentioned here, is he? You just see the actions of, uh, of Jochebed and the actions in a minute of Miriam and the actions in a minute of even Pharaoh's daughter. And, and it's, just a, it's just a reminder that, that, um, um, it, that God's providential hand is always in play. He doesn't always get the streaming, uh, uh, glittering lights to draw attention to himself. He, he quite frequently just works quietly behind the scenes. As he delivered Noah and his family, he is nonetheless at work delivering baby Moses. Now he's, he's doing that, he's doing that through these dear ladies, these dear women. This is, 
civil disobedience. This is civil creative disobedience. I mean, literally, it says there that after she built the, this ark, this baby ark, uh, she, she threw it into the river, which is what she was commanded to do. Throw babies into the river. I mean, just, but she circumvented the fine print of the edict there, and she just, she threw the baby into the river, but she threw the baby into the, in the river using God's provision to protect and, uh, that, that baby. So she, she technically did what Pharaoh said to do. Pharaoh's daughter discovers the baby. Miriam is nearby, checking things out, scoping things out. You, you want me to go find one of the Hebrew women to, 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 to take care of him? Yeah, go find one of the Hebrew women to take care of him. And, and just in the strange providences of God, um, it ends up, she's not doing this for the money, but she ends up getting paid uh, by Pharaoh's own daughter uh, to, to, to take care of this child. And I, I'm assuming here, when it says he grew up, I'm assuming it probably means more closer to the category of when he was weaned. Then, then he was able to be handed off to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, we're, we're told in the book of Hebrews that uh, he was raised in Pharaoh's car, cor, car, court. Uh, not cart, but car, court. Home. But here's these dear ladies that are standing out in this story in, in some level of defiance to big boy Pharaoh. Uh, these dear ladies are, are at work. And what are they doing? They're just doing basic lady stuff. They are, they are protecting and cherishing life. That's just basic blocking and tackling for, for, for really for any human being, but, but, uh, but especially for for women, they and 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 I think there's no small irony that uh, their names are not located here in this chapter because I think again the part of what's being pressed here is is that these dear ladies are gladly choosing obscurity and am and and, and, and they're being anonymous in order to carry out God's plans to protect this child. The big buzzword in our culture today is platform. Everybody's got to have a platform. That's the demise of many pastors. We, we drink the, the Kool-Aid and we think we've got to have a platform. Uh, and uh, we, we forget our own flock because we're too busy building our platform. We've we got to be infamous or famous or something like that. And, uh, and you know, but you know what? That even filters down. Ladies, guard your hearts because you're being told by our culture that you too need a platform. You too need a social media presence so that you, can, uh, that you can make yourself famous or infamous. Maybe God just wants you to be obscure and anonymous. Raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Maybe your fame will not come directly from your life and your actions. Maybe your fame, if God is so pleased to kind of connect some level of fame to you and I, maybe your fame will come through the children that you've raised and loved and nurtured and cared for and protected. Maybe your fame will not be with you. Maybe it'll be with your children. Maybe it'll be with your children's children. Are you okay with that? Are you okay that of no one knowing much about you at all? But they sure know about your kid. I am so grateful 
for a mom and dad that uh, were so cool with just being obscure, no names, and just wanted to leverage their life for the good of their kids. Mary and Gerald Braden lived that. I saw that modeled for me. Um, nobody knows anything about them except for their children and their grandchildren who, who have been touched and blessed by their life. Are you cool with that? Are you, or, or, is, or does Facebook have the, the place where you're going to make it known and make yourself known? Or are you okay with just simply uh, the long trajectory of maybe one day your children will sing your praises. Maybe one day your grandchildren will sing your praises. These ladies are no names. They're nothings. And yet, and yet my, the Lord certainly exalts them in this story. Let, and let that be your case. Just let the Lord exalt you when He wants to, if He wants to. And He may not want to. Are you okay with that? He may be okay with me being a, a no-name pastor. He may be okay with you being a no-name father or a no-name uh, um, mother or a no-name employee or a no-name whatever. Praise God for no-names. Well, the other irony that I want to touch on before I move on to my second point is... <laughs> The Lord, in the part of it is, you and I know the rest of the story. We've cheated. We've read ahead. But, uh, but so we know, even as this is played out here, the one whom the Lord will use to rescue his people is one in this episode has himself been rescued. Rescued by these dear women who've defied Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, the, the one whom Pharaoh purposes to destroy in this episode, fails who will be the very one who will be used by God to destroy Pharaoh. God loves taking what the world says, this is wisdom, this is awesomeness. And the Lord says, <laughs> you're kidding me, right? Is that the best you got? You know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do to bring down the world's superpower? Which is what Egypt was at that time. I'm going... I'm going to save a baby. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to raise that baby up. And, and that baby is going to bring down your dis, dem, demise. Uh, de, just, uh, now, ultimately, the way God does this with his son Jesus, which is the ultimate act of deliverance, is, is even more upside down in that sense. Because what, what Jesus will destroy the devil. But you know how Jesus destroys the devil? Not by killing the devil, but allowing himself to be killed. So that at the cross of Christ, any and all, even this morning, who look to Jesus, who, who look at what, from a world standard, is a ridiculous failure, all who trust in Jesus are given pardon and new life. Because God raises Jesus from the dead, as the story goes, and, and declares him to be Lord. Jesus rules from the cross, and his rule continues through his resurrection on into eternity. Second point I want to touch on, and um, uh, is just simply, uh, my, how time flies, uh, because when we get to verse um, 11, uh, we have now tracked 40 years of Moses' life. Phew, boom, boom. Uh, one day when Moses had grown up, 
AKA 40 years later from his birth to now. Um, you're thinking, boy, I wish your sermons could fly by that fast. So you could cover that much uh, ground or material in that time frame. So um, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. It's interesting, interesting. The Lord had given him a heart for the Hebrew people. Even though he was raised in all of the finery, in, in all of the edumacation uh, that uh, Egypt could offer to him, it, it never quite captivated his heart. He went out one day and looked at his people and, uh, and he looked upon their burdens. His heart was heavy by what he saw. He saw their burdens and that became his burden. Just as, just as Pharaoh's daughter, we're told, had pity or compassion upon him, uh, we, we, we see that Moses who, relatively speaking, has no trouble at all in his life at this moment, uh, has compassion or pity upon his people who are experiencing this hardship. Um, he sees their oppression, he sees their mistreatment, and um, he sees a Hebrew taskmaster striking his, one of his people, and so he ups and strikes one of the Hebrew people. The taskmaster, I mean, the Egyptian taskmaster who was striking uh, one of the Hebrew people and then buries him in the sand. Looks around. No one's, no one's noticed this. I'm not sure how to make sense of all that's in play here in these quick four verses. Um, on the one hand, we're, we read in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 um, that uh, as he's explaining some things about Israel and about Moses in particular, uh, Stephen says Moses believed that, that he was doing what God wanted him to do. And uh, we should just take it at that then. But I would just point out, and boy, not to paralyze any of us, but to give us a sense of caution and even an awareness of our need for discernment. There are times when you and I think we are doing what the Lord wants us to do, and guess what? We could be incorrect about that. Now, that's confusing because you know what? You should always do what the Lord wants you to do. Right. <laughs> and yet sometimes we take big picture, we take large concepts of what the Lord wants us to do, and, and we unpack that into the particulars and the, and the peculiars of a situation, and we misfire. I would say on some level there is a misfire here. Moses rightly sees the burdens of his people. He rightly has pity or compassion upon his people. He, he rightly sees the harsh treatment and the oppression of the Egyptian taskmaster striking the Hebrew person. And yet, the easiest way I know to explain what's going on is what we see right now at this instant in Moses' actions has, has, is not a part of the Lord's timing, nor is it a part of the Lord's manner for liberating his people. Moses is not ready to be used by God to be a deliverer. I think as we read on down, I don't think the Hebrew people are quite ready yet uh, to, to be delivered by God. 
Later, when, when Moses then sees the two, two Hebrew guys arguing with each other, he, he tries to like, get them to quit hurting each other. And, and uh, the proverbial phrase that we would see is they both looked at him and go, Who made you boss of me? Who made you judge and ruler? Who made you the prince? There's a sense in which they are not ready to be a people who are who, who, to be liberated and, and led by the work of the Lord. And so either way, either way, and, and what I, what I want to maybe push in on and, and suggest to us this morning is that uh, Moses' first attempt to liberate his people uh, was not using God's timing or God's means. You and I, when we, when we see oppression, when we see mistreatment, and, and, and praise God if we feel a burden when we see that in our culture today, but where do we go with that? Do we let the world then tell us how we should handle that oppression and mistreatment, how we should liberate oppressed and mistreated people? It, it, because what we are basically being told today is that Moses' first crack at doing this was the, is the best crack. You, you, you enact some sort of a vengeful, retaliatory response. I mean, if you would, you go back and they built the cities of Pithom and Ramses. You go back and perhaps even burn down Pithom and Ramses because that was built with oppressed labor. Our culture tells us that when you see mistreatment and oppression, then you and I are vindicated to use whatever violence we deem necessary. I do not believe that's God's way to normally do these things. It ain't quite time for the Hebrew people to be rescued, and particularly in that way. There will not be a bloodbath on that day in that season. And in fact, then when we get into next week, what we're seeing is now it's already been 40 years since Moses has been around. And now we're going to kick this down, uh, and now we're going to go into the wilderness, uh, Moses and Midian, for another 40 years. So we're now been dangling for over 80 years, more than that if we start even before before the arrival of Moses. And you and I are so far detached from that, and, and we've, we've read these things so quickly, but how long is the Lord pleased to leave his people in oppression and mistreatment? That's, that's, a, that's a really important question that we have to wrestle with that we, when we try to connect the dots to say, what's the Lord up to? I mean, hello, how long does it take the Lord to get his act together to do something? I mean, we're told here's the guy who when there was nothing just simply spoke it into existence and there was everything. I mean, so, so does, it, does it take 80 to 100 and plus years for the Lord to like figure out a plan of attack to, re, to re release his people from captivity? No, it doesn't take the Lord 80 to 100 years, but sometimes the Lord is pleased to leave his people in captivity for 80 to 100 plus years. Because you know what? In God's wise providential plans, it can be a part of God's good purposes to leave us in hard, difficult, trying situations. The American gospel, which has little or nothing to do with the biblical gospel, 
The American gospel starts with man, and it says, uh, and then it adds God as the lackey. It says, look, uh, God wants you to decide whatever you want to do, whatever kind of life you want to have, whatever kind of fun you want to devise. And, and, and then once you figure that out, then the Lord exists to carry out your wishes. Now, that's the kind of gospel that's going to have a hard time saying, what's the Lord doing in these 80 plus years that his people are still in bondage, still in affliction, still in trial, still in difficulty, still suffering? And, and he's, he's, he's moved Moses to Midian. No, the biblical gospel does not start with God exists for you. Oh, He is for you. He is for you in ways that, that you will never quite get your mind around. He is, he is for His people, for their good. That he is incapable of being anything but good to His people. It's just that He has a different set of descriptions and definitions as to what consists of good. He doesn't start with, I don't know, Joe, what do you think I ought to do? I mean, I just want to like, hear from you and uh, let you kind of figure it out. And then, uh, the, oh, that's good. I, you mind if I write that down? You know, it, 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 that, that's not the way he started. That would be a pathetic God. That would not be a God worthy of worship. That would be a God who, who, who would only be deserving of our own pity. No, the biblical gospel starts, well, it's, I don't know, just take Jesus, for instance. The first recorded words we have out of his mouth when he begins his public ministry is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, turn around. This is not about, I don't know, what do you want to do? Uh, and then, okay, I'll follow you. No, this is about God entering into time and space and history and saying, I am the Lord God, the creator. I am the king of the universe. I have now arrived and I brought my kingdom with me. And if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then you must turn from your current trajectory and follow me. And he says, Jesus says the same thing later. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. God, God wants you and I and this is the kindest most loving thing he can say to us which is just an indication of where we're at without him but but God wants you and I to renounce our dreams and to renounce ourselves and to submit to him in what he has designed to carry out in our lives and it is the joy of the presence of the Holy Spirit that will allow us to be, say yeah I'm content with that. I, I, I'm okay with renouncing my pathetic, weak dreams. I, I, I'm, I'm pathetic with, 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 with walking away from what I thought is up and important. Because the Spirit is now at work in me, causing me to want to be content and faithful wherever, whenever, however God plants us in this life. Now, the thing we have to ask ourselves in compare contrast, two columns here, the American gospel, the biblical gospel. Which feels better to you? Which feels more like an interaction with a loving God? A God who will leave you for 80 years in bondage? Or a God who will hightail it and get over here and give you what you said you needed?
Well, it depends on, uh, quite honestly, are you living by the flesh or if you're living by the Spirit. Interesting, odd episode in John chapter 11. Uh, Jesus gets word that his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are in a difficult time. Lazarus is sick. And Mary and Martha send word, Jesus, could you, could you get right over here? Lazarus is sick. And here's what we're told in verse 5 of John 11. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Say, well, okay. Then what I'm going to read next is uh, he got right on that because he loved these people. What the next thing says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was at. In fact, in fact, he stayed long enough that uh, Lazarus went from sick to dead. And, and the thought was, Jesus doesn't care for us. Look at what he let happen to us. God may leave you and I in difficult, hard, agonizing situations of suffering. That's not a part of his inattentiveness toward us. It's not a part of his changing posture of, well, he just don't like you very much no more. So see, that's what it's like to not be liked by God. No, it's an indication of God is always lovingly, providentially at work in our lives through the most difficult situations that honestly cause us to waver and flounder and flip-flop and question God's love. But you know what? Praise God, you and I questioning God's love does not change the posture of God's love toward His people. Amen. He will have plans at times that will leave us in our difficulties. But he's got a plan. Yes, and his plan comes ultimately in what's in future and what's in store through the work of his son, Jesus, who will return again. And we're told that when he comes back the next time, there's going to be a lot of things that's going to be upended and changed. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sin, no more tears. And in the meantime, he loves us still the same. And He is still enabling us with the presence of His Spirit to persevere and to look to Him and to experience joy in the interim. Father, thank You. Thank You for um, Your Word and for how You work in our lives. Thank You for the things that You are doing, even the things that seem very troubling and confusing and perplexing to us. Thank you that you give us your word to help us to begin to make sense of these things, that just as you would leave the Israelites in bondage and not immediately rescue them, Father, we want to have our eyes looking towards you. We want to wait for you. We want to trust in the Lord and we want to do good in the land. May we be happy with that. May we find the strength and joy of the Spirit to enable us to experience that. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's stand if you're able and let's sing this last song together.